Before we get started today, I wanted to let you know that we're doing something a bit different. Today's episode is actually a bonus episode, a different format. I had the chance to interview Colin Hansen, whom some of you may know from the Gospel Coalition, uh, and his book on Tim Keller that just recently came out. I thought it would be fruitful just because Tim Keller has had such a big impact on so many of us at CCF, including me, and because in the book, Colin goes briefly into some of the influences that CCF has had on Keller. So I thought it would be an interesting thing for us to explore, and I think you'll appreciate the conversation we had. Someday, you will be strong and healthy forever. Essential to, to our caring for each other is we actually move toward each other rather than wait for somebody to move toward us. Every person is wrestling with those two basic problems. Problem of identity, problem of evil, whether it's coming at me or coming from within me. What is so remarkable in how the Bible approaches people in suffering, fully cognizant that they feel he's far away, is over and over and over again, it says he's near. Welcome to Where Life and Scripture Meet, a podcast of CCEF, the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. I'm your host, Alistair Groves, and today we're doing something a bit different. Uh, I have the chance to interview Colin Hansen, who is the um, author of Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. Uh, Timothy Keller is probably a name that I would imagine almost everyone listening to this podcast knows. If somehow you've managed not to hear of, of Tim Keller, uh, he's a pastor in Manhattan, has been for, for many years, founded a very successful church there called Redeemer. It's a Presbyterian church and uh, was a big part of launching the Gospel Coalition where Colin works. So without further ado, Colin, thank you so much for giving us some of your time to talk a little bit about this particular book. Um, I'd love it if you would start by maybe saying a, a couple words before we even get to the book about uh, about the Gospel Coalition, about your yeah. relationship there. Actually, I, I don't know how and why you found TGC. I know you have a relationship with Tim. I don't know if that predated your time at TGC. But what would you just say a little bit about TGC, what you love, how you got there? Well, thanks, Alistair. Um, I really have connections at TGC to both of our founders, Don Carson and Tim Keller. So Don Carson was my biblical theology and New Testament professor at, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I did my Master of Divinity between 2007 and 2010. I had previously worked with him because um, I was the news editor at Christianity Today magazine before that. Um, huh. And then Tim Keller, I interviewed him um, unsuccessfully for my first book, Young Restless Reformed, and um, met him at the first Gospel Coalition event in 2007, where he was uh, just talking about preaching Christ from all of scriptures and, and gospel-centered ministry. And so when I graduated in 2010, then I started working uh, for TGC, uh, for, for, uh, for Tim and for Don, and um, starting a lot of that editorial effort. So that's where I originally got started. But the basic premise of the Gospel Coalition is that we we just provide resources that help train church leaders. So all the different kinds of things that they they face. We do a little bit of what CCEF does, just in terms of getting resources about counseling issues and applying the Bible to all of life. Uh, we do a little bit of what Nine Marks does in terms of trying yeah. to help people think through 
ecclesiology and church leadership, but we also try to just connect organizations like CCF and Nine Marks and and all these different seminaries and all these different publishers and just keep them working together. So um, that's that's what we do. We just try to just try to help um, equip church leaders with all kinds of different um, tools that they need to be doing their work, and that could be as as pastors. That could be as professors, but it could be as parents um, and also as counselors. Well, it's a, it's an interesting um, road to to go. Um, I, I have to ask, and you're welcome to say, I have nothing else I can, can or should say about that, that question, but what do you mean by you interviewed Tim Keller unsuccessfully? <laughs> yeah, well, so um, at the time, and really for most of his career, Tim has been focused on being a pastor in New York City. And that's meant that he's not really been that inclined toward getting involved in a bunch of evangelical controversies or trends. Sure. And I was writing about the rise of Reformed theology and this kind of revival of, uh, of Reformed theology in the, in the early 2000s. And I think he just, he was very much in the middle of all of it. And I had not even much of an idea at the time of, of how much it had been influenced, how much, how much he had influenced it and how much he'd been influenced by an earlier reformed revival in Pennsylvania in the 1960s and seventies. Um, but at the time, I think he just wasn't really interested in, in getting caught up in all of that publicly, um, in, in his <laughs> work outside of New York. So, um, he just, um, I said, I said, you know, do you want to do this interview? He said, no. And then he said, well, but here's my email address. You can send me some questions. And then I sent him questions and he responded to them. Yes, no, no, yes, no. <laughs> and so it was useful. It was useless. So that was my that was unsuccessful true. interview of Tim Keller. That 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 really does check both the box of interview and of unsuccessful yeah, or anything right. that's actually of, of worth to you. That's hilarious. <laughs> that's right. Um, I, I noticed looking at your notes in the back that you've obviously done a lot of interviews for this book. I, I sincerely hope you got a bit more from him on some of those dates that it says I did. interview I, with Tim Keller. I got I got many hours with him. <laughs> more successful. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you're here. Oh man. Well, hey, take us into the book here a little bit. I, I'll um, I'll, I'll say probably my um question. I'd be most interested for you to start with is why this book. And let me preface it in a couple of ways just to give you the where my brain is going on this. Um, I, I've been enormously impacted by by Tim Keller. I've been listening to him for for years, hearing his sermons. I've read his things. I was in the Navigators in the early two thousands, and they were passing around this you know little PDF six page thing on deconstructing defeater beliefs. And uh, you know before the reason for God took it and made it you know much more widely available and accessible. And it just it has been um, yeah any any thoughtful Christian anywhere, anywhere near the conservative or reformed side of the evangelical world, uh, it'd be hard, you'd be hard pressed not to have been influenced by, by Tim. And I, I would just look to him as an enormous, enormous impact on me. So I would have read anything you wrote about Tim Keller. You could have said <laughs> Tim, Timothy Keller, his, you know, taste in tweed coats, and I would have bought the book. And, and Why he hates broccoli. Why he hates broccoli. <laughs> sign me up. I, I would be eager to eager to hear that. But you you've chosen the the spiritual intellectual formation. Now I've not read a lot of biographies, but that's not a subtitle I've seen on anybody else's uh, work here. How, yeah, how did you how did you come to this particular tack? I'm thinking about sharing Tim's story. Why did you um, choose the project at all? I, I imagine that has had yeah. something to do with his diagnosis of mm-hmm. pancreatic cancer. Anyhow, say yeah, say what right. you will. That's my question. Well. Um... 
I think basically this is the only book Tim would have agreed to work on and the only book that I could have written about mm-hmm. him. So first of all, on what he would agree to, Tim does not like talking about himself. Now, I've never been in a counseling session with Tim, <laughs> being, as in being his counselor, sure. but um, I just he just does not like talking to people about himself. Not in my, not in my experience, at least not talking to me that way. Um, but he loves to talk about other people. In one sense, that's just being a preacher. You're talking about Jesus all the time. Yeah. But especially he loves to talk about the people who have taught him everything. And he, he shows that work in a way that I don't think hardly any pastors or any counselors do. So that's the first, you know, why this particular angle on his spiritual intellectual formation? Well, that's because that's the way he talks. And Alistair, I have not ever seen another book like this. I kept asking people and never saw it. Yeah. Every biography has a, a section on, oh, okay, well, where did he or she develop those ideas? Um, but nothing. I mean, I just, just haven't seen anything like this before where it's just, just focuses on that. Um, the second thing is I mentioned, it's the only kind of book that I could have, I could have written. Um, I wasn't going to write some sort of critical biography one because Tim's not gone. He's still with us. It was definitely catapulted by his, his pancreatic cancer diagnosis, which back in May of 2020, we had no idea how long we'd have. Yeah. with him the fact that we're three years later um is um shocking. you know it's quite a yes yeah, it's quite shocking exactly so uh, so essentially just wanted to get him on the record saying hey what were you thinking here what did you learn from so and so where did these ideas come from okay. and that's the result is we we now can see where he pieced all these things together like I said, in terms of his spiritual and his intellectual formation in ways that, um, I mean, some ways I I wonder if he even had thought about it before the book itself, I think was a catalyst for him piecing that together in his, his own mind Mm. as well. Hmm. Was it your idea? Was it his? Did someone put you both onto it? Well, I, I knew that this was the only kind of book that he would agree to. I just knew I, I didn't care who the writer was. I didn't care who the publisher was. I just wanted him to do it. Um, I just, I just hoped that somebody would do it. Mm-hmm. And so he happened to ask me to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, so I, w- I was just hopeful that somebody would get him on the record doing this at some point. But I would say, yes, in that sense, it was my idea. But I think anybody around Tim, if they were thinking about writing a book with him and about him, that they would have reached the same conclusions sure. that this is the way to do it. And, and even in the, in the course of, of writing the book, I talked with just about everybody else before I talked with him. Um, now he's on record as a teacher. I could look at his sermons. I could look at his sure. books. And I figured if somebody is not mentioned in those places, they're probably not a huge influence on him, just given how much he talks about them. But um, in the course of doing the project, my, you know, my, my effort to, or my approach of talking to everybody else first, and then, and then talking to him to fill in the gaps and then kind of going back and, and putting it all together. Uh, that approach was, was my idea as well. So it seems you, I suppose, had a bit the same experience he had in, in starting Redeemer himself. He was praying about it and talking to people about it and trying to recruit somebody to go do it. That's and true. Then, uh, the Lord said, actually, Tim, it's going to be you. And here, here you have a yeah. book in the same vein. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I think, gosh, I think 
I think for 10 years, I was trying to talk people into writing about him because I think I just thought I didn't have the the level of, of critical distance necessary to be able to assess, um, to assess him. And, and again, that's not really what the book is. It's not an assessment, but in the right. end, hopefully it becomes really useful to counselors and to pastors and to elders um, of just being able to learn from his life and, and learn about God through him. And uh, so hopefully, yeah, hopefully that's the experience that people have. It, it certainly came out a, a, a particular way because it was me writing it, but I'm just glad that somebody got to have those interviews with him. Yeah. And Colin, obviously at, at some point I want to get to some of the stuff in the book about CCF in particular mm-hmm. and some of the influences that are, that were there. But before I do that, and, and this is, I suppose on one level, this is just my CCEFness uh, internal to me that, that I can't control and can't restrain. And so I have to go here <laughs> first, but um yeah, g- given the uniqueness of the book and um, the way you, I didn't realize you hadn't started uh, with Tim, but had talked to others more first. Yeah. I would just be fascinated to hear you reflect on how the writing process of the book has impacted you personally. Uh, mm. Watching his intellectual formation, how has it made you, yeah. uh, what has it motivated you to change or do or double down on? Where where have you looked at Tim's trajectory and said, oh, that mm. That's interesting. He had that point. I wonder if this particular point in my life will go a different direction or be more significant than I realized, et cetera, et cetera. How, how has it changed you? That's a great question. I would say that when I when I sat down to start to do all the interviews in January of 2021, um, I was I was pretty scared. Um, one because I'd never. I just felt the weight of responsibility for the project. But also, I have I've worked with Tim for a long time. Um, I'm like anybody else, just like what you were describing right there in the beginning. I've read his books. I've listened to his sermons. Um, I've been at these all these conferences where he's spoken, and he's had a big influence on my life. Um, I mean, probably as much as as anybody else. And um, I mean, I teach, I teach through his textbook, Center Church and Seminary and yeah. all these different things in there. And I think, Alistair, I was, I was scared about what I was going to find. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, I've been, I've been in politics. I've been in, in journalism. I've been in church leadership for a long time. And it's not always, it's not always pretty behind yeah. the curtain. And in fact, it's not, not just that it's not always pretty, it's usually not pretty yeah. <laughs> behind the curtain yeah. in some way or another. And I think I was just afraid by what I was going to find. And there was a moment in the project where one of uh, his longtime colleagues, um, Catherine Larry Alsdorf, and Catherine and I have worked together on a number of things as well. And um, Catherine was had the same kind of experience that a lot of people had talking with me. She was, she was crying in thankfulness for Tim. And she saw me feverishly scribbling down a bunch of notes. And, and then, and then she stopped herself and she said, but don't you dare make him out to be a saint. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, he was, he had to go to the Lord in prayer because of all the problems that we had on staff and, 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 you know, a lot of people had that experience of the closer they got to Tim, the more they have loved him, but not idolized him. Mm. But that's a that's a good attitude. And so I think what changed me is that 
you want people that are close to you to not idolize you because mm. it means you're you're not being honest enough and you're not confessing enough about your sin. If, if people don't see you in your sin, it, they probably just don't know you very well. Um, it's just not possible for us to hide it when we're being our true selves entirely. Um, and so you don't want people to idolize you, but you do want people to, the people that we're close to should admire us at some yeah. level and we should admire yeah. them and we should love them and we should appreciate them and we should give the lord thanks for for the role that they've played in our lives and so that was that that changed me and it gave me perspective on the kind of leader that i want to be not idolized by anyone um but but hopefully admired only as somebody who is trying to be a conduit of that grace that comes from God alone. So not for our sake, but appointing to appointing to Christ. And so um, that was a a real privilege um, to be a to be a part of that process. And and thankfully, um, the more I talk to other people, the the less scared I less scared I got. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad you persevered through the fear and uh, and put these things down on paper. And uh, I guess I'll speak here for a moment to my to our listeners. Um, it, it should be pretty obvious by the fact that I'm doing our first ever interview special episode here that I appreciate the book, but um, there, I think I, I read the book, like I said, because I'm interested in Tim. Um, what I found is that it, it's had a much more pro- profound, um, inspiring, convicting, reflection forcing impact on me than I had expected. I, I was intrigued mm. more about Tim uh, and I, I'm finding it so many places it's really pushed me. And one place to to, to what you just said, Colin, that really struck me um, towards the end, there, there's a bit where, where Tim says, uh, essentially, leadership in ministry is going to amplify whoever you are. And um, that isn't uh, that you're going to, your weaknesses therefore are going to be exposed and it's and it's not fundamentally staffing your weaknesses which is the typical advice out there that's going to help you get through it's actually um the core of your character that is going to be the thing that uh, is most important in the face of your weaknesses that will remain however much you may make little bits of improvement here and there and that was that was so striking to me i'm, I'm fairly young in leadership myself um and uh, that that was a that was both a uh, a scary and an encouraging thing to hear as I've seen my own weaknesses exposed. So your focus on, on just that sense of, yeah, it's, it's shaped. I, I would love people near me to have an affection, appreciation or, or respect and admiration even for me, if I am serving the Lord well, but they wouldn't idolize. It would be impossible to idolize me. And I wouldn't yeah. hide from that. I, I really appreciate that answer. Yeah. Well, and, and it helped give me some perspective on the particular weaknesses that that he has and he's he's just he's open about them he does not like conflict and he does not like it when people don't like him i mean i think a lot of craziness, us craziness. to do you know to, to to these things but it is a little bit weird for somebody who's in such a prominent leadership position to admit that um or to be able to to say leadership is a multi-varied thing Tim can say, I am not a very good leader. And I can say, ah, Tim, yeah. I've seen you for too long and I've talked to too many people. You are definitely a good leader, but you are definitely not a good manager. Yeah. Um, and that's, look, when you think about church leaders, think about pastors, 
especially. Um, counselors are a little bit different there because they have a little bit more of a specific vocation. Sure. But a pastor is expected to be a business leader, a teacher, an academic, a counselor. I tell people all the time, if your pastor is good at two of those things, that's basically a miracle. <laughs> um, but just nobody is, I mean, we're just good, yeah. good at good at all these things. And most of us are not good at many of these things. And so it's just typical when you have somebody who might be a spectacular counselor, but wouldn't be able to run an elder's business meeting um, or being able to, to finance a building campaign. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, and somebody who could be an outstanding preacher it's not clear how that skill is supposed to translate to counseling. Now, a good, I mean, hopefully that if the better counselor you were using your CCF resources, it would make you a better preacher. That's definitely Tim Keller's experience. Yeah. But even though Tim has spent a lot of time in his past as a counselor, I don't, I would not really describe him. I, sure. I just did not see a lot of evidence of him in New York doing a lot of counseling yeah. as a pastor. And so that's, that is the kind of experience I'm hoping that people will have is being able to see some of themselves in what they're learning from Tim. Hopefully that's, that's a, a major takeaway for everybody who reads the book. Yeah. Well, as a counselor, I can certainly affirm that Tim's material has been stunningly, stunningly helpful to, to me as a counselor and to many of my, my colleagues. Can, can we segue to the CCF particular yeah, here? You you say a number of things in the book. I appreciate um, yeah, just the, the kindness with which you've treated CCF in general, uh, David Pallison and Ed Welch mm -hmm. in particular. Um, I would, I would characterize the, the influences you've described it as sort of a, there, there were just some, some key seeds, maybe some key, um, places where Tim was already heading a particular direction and, and having some, uh, some maybe refinement of his categories, maybe mm -hmm. some uh, unpacking of uh, particularly issues of idolatry, whether cultural or personal, right. that, that you would say were impacts there from, from David in particular. And, and mm -hmm. uh, David and, and Tim, you know, spent some time together at New Life Presbyterian Church right. in uh, Glenside outside Philadelphia in the mid 80s. Uh, there would have been a, you know, shared overlap of Westminster Seminary time and, right. and CCF faculty connecting with Westminster faculty. And, but what, yeah, would you speak just to what? Um, influences, impacts, um, things you've observed there? You know, the first exposure connection between Tim Keller and CCF was 1975. It was when he graduated seminary, headed to Hopewell. And I actually have this. Um, I, I, I'll have to go pull it up if you, if you want to share it with people. But I have the CCEF worksheet that he used with this young man <laughs> who wandered into his church and was like, hey, my life is falling apart. Yeah. I don't know where else to go. I got married. It's not, it's not working out. What should I do? And, um, and this, this guy would become one of, of Tim and Kathy Keller's closest friends. Yeah. Um, but I remember asking him, do you still have that worksheet? And said, yeah, I never knew a pastor before who assigned me homework. <laughs> I, I will take it, Colin. If you okay. ever get it, I would, I would love I'll, to see it. I'll go. I'll go track <laughs> it down. It sure. But um, yeah, I mean that was that was Tim's first instinct as sure. a pastor was to say, "Where do I go for this help? I'm going to CCF." <laughs> so that's right there in 1975. Um, yeah. And CCF was how old? 
at that time? Seven years old. We were That's little babies. Me. David Pallison. Right. I don't think David had even necessarily come to faith yet in 75. I can't remember. He was somewhere in that mid wow. to late 70s. Okay. He was, David was working on a, an inpatient ward in a psychiatric uh, teaching hospital. Okay. And uh, it was partly through observing the extremities of human brokenness and saying, mm. they're actually more like me than I, I have keys and I go home at night. And there are reasons for that. But mm. I am. Um, I can't answer the human condition in an intellectually satisfying way. Uh, so I, I actually, I don't know the exact date of, of David's, David's conversion, but it was, it was right in that era. So anyhow. Uh, yeah, so you, we, so were you have that, we were young yeah, at 75. Yeah. That's what, that's what I thought of was just trying to even think of, of where he would have connected with CCF at the time. Cause he was a Virginia. So maybe there was some connection through, um, um, through Gordon Conwell. I'm not even, I'm not even sure, but, but he had that right off the bat. That was his instinct. And I would have to imagine he got burned out in, in Hopewell. He said it at, at a given point, he might be doing four crisis counseling interventions with couples at the same time. As you know, that's incredibly draining work for somebody who's also preaching right, for anybody. three different, for anybody, but somebody who's also preaching oh. three separate messages yeah. per week and has three young boys in the home. That would that would have been a rough situation, but I, I have to imagine in those marriage counseling sessions he was using CCF as well, just based on my experience with with him. I didn't document that in the book, but I'm just sure. assuming that. But you mentioned already you you jump forward to Philadelphia, and all of a sudden, yeah, there's all these intersections in 1980s um, between Jack Miller and then ultimately David Pallison, Ed Welch, and and that just the whole the whole Philadelphia milieu at the time. And uh, it's interesting that when you and then the and the next explicit connection is that of all the things Tim Keller is known for, and it's a it's a long list. One of them that would be near the top would be the centrality of his treatment of idolatry. Yeah, uh, his counterfeit gods book, but it's really a central feature of virtually every that sermon yeah. that he does. It's and, and you can you can vary you can cite that lineage all sorts of different ways. You can you can cite it back to Augustine and his disordered loves. You can cite it back to Luther and the concept of when we break the any of the you know two through ten commandments, we break the first. Yeah. Um you could you could you could look at it from all those different perspectives, but for sure you can connect it to David Pallison's article, Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. Um, so that's not the first time I don't think Tim exposed to that concept, but it helps sure. to helps to crystallize that for him. And then I would say that um, I had a very insightful friend at one point mentioned to me that when people um, people misunderstand the essence of of Tim, they think, oh, here's somebody who really just understands our culture. Huh. And while he does, what he understands more than anything else is our hearts. Um, and that goes back to, goes back to the way that he would sit with his friends at Gordon Conwell and they would just talk about their, their challenges. They would counsel each other as, yeah. as young 20 something friends. But, but then you can see through CCEF, the, the kind of that, that heart surgeon at work and um, the, the way that somebody would preach with an eye toward those heart dynamics and gospel dynamics in there of a counselor. Mm -hmm. And as somebody who did actually do a lot of cultural um, analysis through just 
asking people questions. That was the one thread through his life was that the way he did that cultural analysis was through asking questions, not through debates, not through arguing, but primarily just through asking questions. And so, and that became then a method for him to be able to, um, you know, point people toward the gospel. So in some ways he, and people have often commented that Tim has a professorial demeanor. Um, I don't know exactly what a counselor's demeanor is supposed to be exactly, (laughs) but um, he, he has a very approachable physician of the soul um, kind of just feel as a preacher. And I really think that if you combine that with CCEF, with his extensive exposure to the the Puritans, who were themselves very attuned to being physicians of the soul, I think that's I think that's the key to understanding Tim that people that people often miss. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could we could <laughs> we could double click on any of those points there. Oh yes, um, and that, I think they're just key 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 overlaps with CCF in particular for Tim. I it's. It's just fascinating to me, Colin, to hear you reflecting on it from from your seat and seeing it, seeing it and seeing Tim and, you know, even just his, uh, even the way that you describe that those Gordon Connell days, young friends were, were counseling each other. One of the distinctives of CCF, and it's something that I find I, I'm constantly having to explain to people who are not familiar, is the idea that we, we it's not like we have this crazy counselor technology and all these, you know, things you've never heard of. It's we are simply doing Christian life. We are simply doing um, the the application of the gospel. It happens in a particular context. And there's a lot of things that we have had to wrestle through and think through the the darkest, hardest places that that human beings can go. Um, and and taking the rich theology that's there that matters when you're parenting your five-year-old and matters when you're talking to your friend in a dorm room at 3 a.m. and matters when you're on, on Zoom with your boss. And But whatever it looks like in the most difficult, complex, wow, this human issue is so ingrained and difficult to even know, um, it, it is simply the heart, the active heart, the out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And and so therefore the, the demeanor of a counselor is, well, it's, it's whoever the Lord has made you to be. There isn't one oh, personality, the, right. the professor and the uh, the prophet and the evangelist and the shy, quiet, but but thoughtful, boldly putting myself out there person are equally welcome at the table. Um, qu- question for you. This is a yeah. little bit off the side. Um, one one thing David uh, Palestine experienced in particular was that hit that the article you mentioned, Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair, was immensely popular, helpful, has been transformative for so many. I found this too. And and David began to find that there was something that would happen with students in particular where they would get a hold of the idol category and see the helpfulness of it for rearranging the furniture in our souls, but would then narrow into only idolatry and 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 there's uh, often language we'd use of idol hunting and yeah. and David as time went on actually began to to push away from the language of idolatry not so much because he disagreed with it but because he mm. watched an over focus on it a a narrowing uh, Tim obviously not someone you would ever accuse of narrowing in any way no. uh, broadening out did you ever observe or have have you seen mm. in Tim any sort of um qualifying or concern about idolatry language. I've I've not done an intensive study. I've never yeah. heard Tim step away from that language. Uh, it seems he's always very comfortable using it. Have you yeah. seen anything there? I haven't seen him step away from that. But I think the difference with Tim is that he is such an expansive thinker who borrows from so many different categories that 
you're not going to find him hitting only one note on anything. Um, he'll just, he'll be able to transition between different influences. And so he might be hitting really hard on the idolatry theme in some different ways. But again, it's going to be mediated through so many different stories and so many different perspectives. He might draw out the Augustinian angle at this point, or he might draw out the Lutheran angle at this point, or he might go straight for the the Puritans, or he might, he might just explicitly cite Pallison in there. Um, but also, there are so many different applications to it, um, so many different forms in which it is manifested. And then you can also look at, you alluded to this earlier, Alistair, you, you can also look at this at a cultural level. Right. Um, that was one of his distinct um, contributions as well as being able to, because yet when you think about, think about Jack Miller, he would also often talk about being gospel centered, but he tended to speak of that in psychological terms. Tim has often spoken about that, but he, he speaks about it in more theological or cultural terms. And that's similar to the way that he would use idolatry in so many different ways. That he would talk about it in terms of a culture, he'd talk about it in terms of an individual. He'd use it in terms of um, in, in personal ways, but also multifaceted. There'd be so many different manifestations of it. So, yeah, it's just kind of typical of Tim that he he'll always he'll add it to his tool belt and he'll deploy it when he when he needs to. But he's got so many other tools that it doesn't it doesn't sound entirely repetitive. That's also true of when he got older. Because earlier in his ministry, before he'd added all of those mature rings as yeah. that tree grew, um, he would get into a situation where he would say, oh, I'm, I'm reading too many, too many Dick Lucas sermons, or I'm listening to too many Dick Lucas <laughs> sermons. And all of a sudden, Kathy, my, you know, Kathy Tim's wife was telling him, yeah. you got to stop because <laughs> you, <laughs> you sound too much. And then Tim also complained about how some people get, they get into the Puritan forest and they never come out. And all of a sudden they're, they're, they're saying methinks in their sermons because they <laughs> they're so influenced. So, but I mean, bottom line, no, I never heard him. I've never heard him back away from that, but it's, it's just one tool. In the yeah. tool belt. And the implication there is, is that the breadth of his preaching and the breadth of what was happening at Redeemer uh, has never left him concerned that those who are hearing him were somehow locking in on idolatry in an overly narrow way. But the, the, the no. breadth of what he was doing was obviously coming through the community in a way he was satisfied with. And that's that's the you know you have you have to you need to respond to the pastoral concern on the ground, not to some yeah. uh, theoretical sense of am I over percentageizing one particular yeah. uh, avenue in scripture? And, and obviously, Tim, yeah, is the most well-read and most broadly read person <laughs> I've ever. Uh, I think that's safe to, to say. Yeah, yeah, I think that's safe to say. God, let's let's uh, let's aim to to land sort of in in this area. I'm I'm just thinking about Tim and his legacy. Uh, obviously, both you and I can speak powerfully to his legacy in us personally, and and to a majillion people around us. Um, uh, we're glad that we're not saying me thanks, but we probably are saying things that Miller uh, has put in his sermons that we're not even aware of. How would you? How would you describe um, the sort of two parts? What, what are you perceiving currently as, as Keller's legacy? And then if you could just write your dream script, if you could look out into the future oh. as many decades out as you want to go, what do you, what do you hope for the legacy of Keller? And I know that may that may take you to yeah. question about the Keller Center that PGC is trying to form, yeah. but I'm just interested in your, your view from up close um, with a lot of responsibility. Uh, yeah. How do you see Tim's legacy and where do you see it going? It's a good question. The thing that 
Tim comes back to consistently is that identity as an ecclesial revivalist. And so there's two important components there, ecclesial meaning based in the church and then revivalist seeking that deeper experience of God. And that I think is the, is, I mean, I guess that's, that is my ideal script is that people will see the, the important role of the church that Ed Clowney taught Tim. Now, Tim was a convert of the parachurch, but it was Ed Clowney who helped him see the significance of the church in God's plan. But then the revival part was, it was a a sense in which the the church as an institution can become, you know, calcified. It it can be frozen in time. It can be decontextualized. Mm -hmm. And Richard Loveless taught him about those dynamics of revival, of, of disenculturating the faith, of unleashing the gospel with new expressions. And so I think that institutional slash movement dynamic, those have always been an interplay in his life that we need institutions because that's what God has, has given us to be able to do his work. At the same time, we need the fresh uh, wind of the spirit to be able to move. Um, And I think we are in a unique, unique time that is very, very deeply anti-institutional. It's very emotive. Um, in a lot of different ways across the culture and it's performative. There's a lot of performative spirituality. And so that's where revival can go wrong. It can become very performative and self-centered, especially when it's not ecclesial. And so that's, that's a lot of the legacy that I'm, that I'm hoping that people will be able to see in Tim. Um, Because the thing about the, the cultural apologetics is that, even for the amazing work that Tim has done, the Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics is not about going back and just repeating the things that Tim has said, because sure. Tim himself will be the first person to say, I'm not sure that stuff works in the yeah. same way. An important part of this book is talking about how the reason for God is this amazing best-selling book in 2008. He's already thinking that is obsolete. Yeah. And then he has to write a whole new book, Making Sense of God in 2016, to try to show different directions. Um, and so New York has changed. The, the nation has has changed. The, yeah. the world has changed in a lot of different ways. But but in the end, there's still so it's, it's that same dynamic of everything has changed and yet nothing has changed. The solution is the same. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's His gospel. It's in the transforming spirit uh, power, of the spirit in the human heart. Um, it, like you said, that's out of, out of that heart flows everything. And so that the solution hasn't changed, but at the same time, we, we do have to be flexible in what the best methods essentially are of being able to apply that gospel because the, the issues always, always change and some and new threats, uh, tend to emerge and, and must be addressed, uh, in there and not just new threats, but as we see through church history, there are new, it's the same gospel always, but we seem to see different facets of it, like a diamond at different points of time. So I think the best way to to honor Tim when we're thinking about counseling, preaching, doing this work of evangelism is not by going back and saying, wow, he figured it all out, but to say he was a faithful example in his time and we will continue to learn from him in his sermons and books for many, many, many years to come. But we've got to do our own work in our generation. And that work starts in our hearts 
it starts in, in uh, on our, our on our faces in prayer before God and in in his word because that's how it happened for Tim. Yeah. It, it didn't it didn't come through just learning from some other human right. figure. It came from learning from God himself. So that's what I'm hopeful that people do is and I just concluded the book this way but it would be terribly ironic if this man who has spent so much of his life pointing people to Jesus, we turn around and we point to him. Um, so we, as I mentioned in the book, we honor him best by, by reading his library, um, but by, you know, kind of adding him to that library that we grab from and learn from as best we can applying it to our day and then doing that work in, in our own time. So it's kind of a complicated answer, but that's that's how I'm thinking it. No, through. Colin. It, it, well, I suppose it is a complicated answer in one sense, but it, but it's a simple uh, answer at the heart of the complexity, which is it's th- there's nothing different. There's no magic. There's not the the PK way that we need to no. you know study and preserve for all time. If anything, I mean, you referenced you know his his book in 08 and then his book in sixteen. I remember that that has been one of the most scary, but one of the most freeing yeah. things. From a distance of here's a guy who wrote the book on yeah. apologetics in 2008, and eight years later he wrote another book that basically said, you know, that the, the culture is just not asking the same questions. Yeah. Um, and and so I have a, a second book that that speaks differently because the pastoral concern on the ground is different. There's a difference between Colossians and there's a difference between Galatians yeah. and Corinthians because there were different pastoral concerns. It's not a different gospel. Exactly. It's a different pastoral context, and that has been so freeing to to see. So I, I think you're I think you're you're dead on. Um, let me let me ask you one last yeah. question, and I'm speaking now to Colin, the writer. Yeah. And um, I uh, I've heard every writing seminar, every writing book, every guru of writing, or even writing blog I've ever seen has referenced the "Kill Your Darlings" um, yeah. line. The you know to, uh, the great writer has to pull out the things, and there's things you love and you wish you had it, but you you, yeah. you were so excited about it, you've got to kill your darlings on the cutting room floor <laughs> and let them go and whatever. So I'm going to give you a chance here, Colin. Yeah. What is one darling you had to cut out of the book that you didn't get to put in, but now you get to at least sort of have somewhere on the public record? What, what's I'll, one of your uh, favorite darlings? I'll give you two. All right. So let's uh, give two you for two. the price of one. I love uh, it. Two for the price of one. Um, I did a what I thought was a fascinating exploration of the reception history of J.R.R. Tolkien. Because we think of him today as this middle America, you know, apple pie and american flag you <laughs> yes, know um, yes. figure family figure sure but he was a countercultural figure in the 1960s and the 1970s thinking about little people sitting in their little huts all day smoking yeah um i mean it just it was not uh, he was he was considered uh, a rebel i mean these uh-huh. hobbits they, they were considered rebels and so uh-huh. uh, so i just did a little bit of a reception history which helped to explain to me, the way the Jesus movement was very much countercultural, rebellious, but now it's just kind of mainstream baby boomer stuff. Right. Right. Um, and then the second one, which is perhaps more poignant, um, that is more the history of Richard Loveless, um, Tim's incredibly influential professor at, um, at Gordon-Conwell. Uh, Loveless was later diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Um, and it helped to give context for 
why his students felt that he was notoriously absent-minded and why he had just the wildest stories. I mean, talking about getting fired from a church after showing inappropriate like horror movies to students, having an alligator jump out of an or a church organ. I mean, just weird, <laughs> weird stuff in yeah. there. But later on, um, one of Loveless's sons wrote a just a very, a very painful um, just kind of account of the family's struggles mm. in there. And so and it wasn't, I can understand why it was cut, <laughs> but I do think um, it's just helpful to understand how complicated people are and counselors yeah. know that full well, yeah. but young people setting out in ministry, I don't think they do understand yeah. that. And so when you think about Tim as a young professor, young student looking up to his professor he learned so much for richard loveless yeah but really didn't have much idea what he was really experiencing yeah. going through and so it's a good lesson for church leaders just to kind of know you, you don't usually know yeah. all that somebody is going through and it's and it's good to have a posture of um of sympathy <laughs> going into that and, and of curiosity to yes. learn about that. So I had to cut um, the sections on Loveless and on Tolkien, huh. uh, but I may find other venues. <laughs> well, I, I really hope you do because, because of exactly the lesson. I mean, A, I would just be interested, but but yeah. B, the, the lesson you're, you're, you're saying is a profound one. And, and it, it all the more just encourages me of the mercy of God who can work through people who are not perfect. He, he doesn't need a perfect Loveless. He doesn't need a perfect Tolkien. He doesn't need a perfect Keller yeah. to do his good work through us and each other. So, yeah. Colin, thank you so, so much for giving us this time. Really, really appreciate it. May the Lord bless you as you continue to write and think and lead and grow. Oh, thanks so much, Alistair. 